0: Welcome First Friends Church family. We are so glad to have you tuning in because here at First Friends Church, we live to glorify God together by loving Him, making disciples, and proclaiming the gospel. One of the best ways to strengthen our faith is by diving into the Word of God together during our Sunday gatherings. So if you don't have a church family, we would love to have you join us. All there is to know as you plan your visit can be found at firstfriends.org. Now let's go to our lead pastor Nathaniel with this week's message.
1: After high school, most of you know, I took two gap years and worked on a mission ship. And on my way to the mission ship, I had to go for some training in Europe, so I ended up spending a week with a friend in Denmark. Now, growing up, I had read the fairy tale, or had had the fairy tale read to me, The Little Mermaid. And I know, for those of you who are younger, you only know that as two different movies, a live-action movie more recently, and a cartoon movie animated movie from a number of years ago. Before all that, it was a fairy tale written by a Danish author named Hans Christian Andersen. And I knew that there was a sculpture of the Little Mermaid in Copenhagen Harbor in Denmark. And I, I wanted to see it because it was a thing to do, right? I, I, it was an, an iconic landmark. My friend with whom I was staying, he was gentle about it, but he tried to dissuade me from going to see The Little Mermaid, but I kind of insisted. I mean, this was a big deal to me. And so one day, one morning, we went to downtown Copenhagen, went there to the harbor, and I saw the exceedingly unimpressive Little Mermaid. She was little. I should have been forewarned. Um, Sculpture sits on a rock about two or three feet out in the water. Um, she's about this tall. She was not worth the effort. She was not worth the time. She was unimpressive and ultimately just there. If any of you ever traveled to Denmark, I strongly encourage you not to waste the time on The Little Mermaid. Google it. You can look at it. It's just as impressive on a Google photo as it is to be there in real life. This morning, we're addressing the final passage of Peter's first letter to the Christians in Asia Minor. I know you've heard this many times. This is the 16th, 17th, sorry, installment on this letter. But his audience, the people that Peter wrote to, they were suffering intensely. They had already been scattered. They were exiles, so they'd been chased out of their homes. And Peter closes his letter to them with a strong encouragement. And the encouragement is this, don't, give up on your faith. Even though you're going through suffering, even though you're going through persecution, don't give up. Now, even for us, along with Peter's readers, when life is less than what we hoped it would be or expected it to be, we wonder if being faithful to Jesus is really worth it. And we're tempted to give up. I know I am and I have been. Tempted to give up because of fear. Fear that we're going to go through this pain and suffering and fear that I'm going to deny myself, you know, the pleasures of what we call the world, the the pleasures of sin. Like I'm going to say no to that stuff because I'm looking forward to something greater, but then I'm going to get to something greater. I'm going to get to the end of all things. I'm going to get to heaven and it's going to be like the Little Mermaid. Very small, unimpressive, and ultimately boring. So Peter closes his letters, this one particularly, with strong reminders to his readers to remain faithful because Jesus is worth it. And the reward that Jesus promises, it's far beyond anything this world will ever be able to give. You've heard me say before that as a kid, I remember sitting in church and thinking about heaven and thinking about eternity, and it was just exhausting. And I imagined heaven... I've told you this many times. It's a never-ending church service. That's what I thought it was as a kid. And I was like, I really don't want that. I would never have said that out loud, like I don't want to go to heaven, but I was like, if it's going to be like this, I really don't want to go. And I'll go one step further and say, even now as an adult, as a pastor, I don't know if I'd want to go if it was just going to be this. This is good, but I don't want it to be just this forever. And sometimes we think of, of eternity, we think of heaven as just being uh, never ending retirement so like we make it through through this life and kind of retire from life and then we've got it easy and we've got it good but i think heaven is going to be far more stimulating than that i think we're going to work there but our work there is actually going to be effective and it's not going to be painful and it's not going to be disappointing. We're going to have a sense of purpose like we've never had before. And we're going to be able to fulfill that sense of purpose far better than we've fulfilled anything here in this time. So if, if you don't have a copy of the Bible and you'd like to borrow one for this service, the ushers are coming back down the aisles now. They have some copies. You just raise your hand, catch their eye. They'll give you one. And I want to go one, one step further. If you do not own... Your own Bible, and you 'd like to take one, just take this one, receive it as a gift from us you don 't have to return it at the end of the service. so i 'm going to be reading for the, for the last time, at least the last time in, in these weeks, from peter 's first letter, and if you again, if you 're not familiar with the Bible as a book, first Peter is close to the end. so if you turn to the back cover and start leafing forward toward the front, you 'll find it pretty soon. So I'm going to read the last passage, 1 Peter, chapter 5, from verses 6 through 14. Here are Peter's final instructions, final challenges to his readers. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because... He cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever, amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God, Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This final section, Peter organizes into four imperatives each with its accompanying reason for why we should obey it. And finally, he's going to end with the foundation of all that he exhorts his readers to do. In other words, everything that he's challenged throughout this whole letter, everything that he's encouraged, everything that he's exhorted, he's going to end by telling us what's going to enable us to do all that stuff. The first imperative is this, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. Now, in context... To humble themselves before God meant, first of all, this is always the first step in humility before God, admitting that we need him. So coming to the understanding that I'm not enough, I'm not sufficient, I can't fix everything that I've broken in my life. And then secondly, after that initial submission, it comes to submitting to God's will for their lives and in the context to suffering and persecution because they believe in Jesus. So arrogance and pride makes us challenge God. What right do you have to make me suffer? I don't have to take this. This isn't what I signed up for. And the implied danger is that our pride would lead us to reject Jesus because the price of following him is not worth the perceived reward. So Peter tells them, and us to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, to accept what comes in his plan. But then he tells us why. He will lift you up in due time. That's why it's worth humbling ourselves under God's hand. And this in due time refers to the end of all things, the final day. So we can't really claim this promise for temporal issues. Jesus didn't die for you, and he didn't die for me. Jesus didn't die for the world just to make our lives better here on earth. If that were the only reason, that would be very, very shallow. It's a far greater purpose than that. So we can't really claim this promise for temporal issues. God doesn't promise us that promotion at work. I know it's popular for us to hear that and to be told that, but God, he never promises us that. He doesn't promise us that special deal or a comfortable life or lots of money or an awesome spouse or that perfect parking spot right near the entrance. That's not what Peter means by writing, he will lift you up in due time. It's something far greater. At the end of all things, those who belong to Christ, those who are God's children, are going to be raised up beyond suffering, pain, or regret. And that's difficult even for us to imagine what life without those things would be like because they're so endemic to what we live every day here. But that's where those who belong to Christ are going. Lifted up beyond the reach of evil, sin, or hurt into eternal joy and pleasure. God will do this and only God can do this. And so Peter says, surely it's worth submission to his plan and his timing here for us to receive that there. The second imperative, I think, is probably extremely applicable to life in 2023. And what is it? Cast all your anxiety on him. Anxiety, in case you're wondering, it's not decreasing in our world. It's growing, and it's growing exponentially, and it can be... For anyone who's ever experienced it, and I'm guessing that's everybody, we know it can be paralyzing. It can keep us from choosing, from making decisions. It can keep us from sleeping, from resting, from connecting with others. Steals our joy, steals our time, steals our health. And Peter tells his readers to cast all their anxiety onto God. And this verb, cast, We don't use that very often today, unless we're fishermen. Um, We don't use that verb often, but it means in context in the Greek to throw it as far as you can, to launch it. Launch it as far as possible from you. Not just set it, not just place it, not rest it, but, okay, in the vernacular, chuck it. As a kid growing up in Brazil, fireworks were available all the time, and they were not regulated and they were a lot of fun, and they were big, and they could do serious damage. And I remember Joel Rass, my friend and I, along with others, used to get the, 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 the dirt in Sao Paulo where we lived, had a high clay content, so we'd kind of dig it up, moisten it, and then form it around these fireworks, you know, while it was wet. And then we would push like bits of gravel and rocks into that clay, then we'd let it dry in the sun. And then, one of us would hold it, already with the arm cocked, and the other would light the fuse. And let me tell you something, as soon as that fuse was lit, we were casting it <laughs> as far as we could, potentially toward, I don't know, other friends, but we were not keeping it close to us. So, we, when we cast it, we weren't just like dropping it on the floor, we weren't setting it, we definitely weren't keeping our hands on it we were casting it as far from us as we could. And this is the essence of this verb that Peter uses here, cast your anxieties, throw them, chuck them, give them. And then he answers the question, why we should do this? Why cast your anxiety onto God? It's a simple reason, but it's one which we often ignore because he cares for you. That's actually the foundation. We we focus, when we hear this verse, we usually focus on that first part, cast all your anxieties onto God. But the power of this, the reason that's even viable is because God cares for you. So I want us to do something That will potentially be a little awkward, so you can close your eyes if you want to do it. But put your your hand over your heart. And just whisper. Do it so that you can hear it. You don't have to do it loudly so everyone else hears it. But talk to God and just say, just, just repeat it as you think about it a few times. You care for me. You care. Breathe in that truth. The fact that God cares for his people, it's a foundation piece of this letter. It's a foundation of the scriptures as a whole. God loves his people. And this exhortation about anxiety also relates to the previous one about humbling ourselves. Because pride or self-focus, it leads to anxiety because we think God does not care for us. Or rather, we think he doesn't care enough and that we can do a better job caring for ourselves than God can do of caring for me. And the kind of anxiety that Peter's addressing at its most fundamental is the doubt, the doubt that God really cares about and that he really cares for me. Anxiety is always an opportunity to press in toward the care of God for his anxious, fearful child. That's you and that's me. And we need to remind ourselves of this truth over and over and over again. Even just by doing that. You care for me. You care for me. There have been a number of times where I've awakened that two or three in the morning. That's where, that's the time that anxiety most usually attacks me. And I wake up It may be something specific that's weighing on my mind, it may not be, but my mind starts going. I can't sleep. I can't rest. And I've learned something. Now, I also want to say that I understand in anxiety what we most want, what we all want is just for the anxiety to stop. That's ultimately what we're looking for, right? The problem is, if that's, if that's our only goal and our only desire, that's going to lead us into all kinds of unhealthy ways of dealing with the anxiety because all we're trying to do is find relief. So if chemicals are going to give us the relief, we'll take the chemicals. If media of some kind is going to give us relief, we're going to take the media. If pornography is going to give us the release, we're going to take pornography. If we're going to take whatever it might be, that's just going to make the anxiety stop. That's what we're going to look for. That's what we're going to attack. And the problem is that leads to addiction. Whereas God is saying, don't, don't take this anesthetic because all that anesthetic, all that does is deaden the pain. It doesn't change the anxiety. It's temporary. God says, come to me. Cast all your anxiety on me. So I learned, and this isn't a magic bullet, and it's not a formula. I'm just saying what God did in me. So if I would get up 2, 2.30, whatever time it was, go downstairs, get out my Bible, and just be quiet with God. I'd also take my journal, read a passage of Scripture, and just journal, even journal what I was feeling, what my anxieties were, and intentionally give them to God. I would often find that within half an hour, 40 minutes, I could go back to bed, and go back to sleep. And I think our greatest fear that induces anxiety is often, it's the fear that God is not going to protect me from suffering and pain. So like God, if I really submit to you, if I'm really following you, I know that this potential for really hard stuff exists and it's out there and I'm really afraid of that. And this again traces back to something that we talked about last week, God's grace in the right time. There were five kids in my family. So the five of us, together with my parents, made seven. Anytime we traveled internationally, that meant seven passports. I actually had two passports, an American and a Brazilian passport—so so I made eight passports that my dad had to keep track of. You know when my dad gave me my passports? It, about 15 seconds before I had to show them to the immigration official. Well, why didn't he give them to you? You know, wouldn't you have felt far more confident and at ease knowing you had your own passport like several hours before? No, because I guarantee you that if my dad had entrusted my passports to me, even 10 minutes before, they would not have been in my hand when I needed to go through immigration. I know myself well, my dad knew me even better. Nathaniel has an incredible ability to lose, to misplace, to forget, to be irresponsible. So when does he give it to me? Right before, literally right before showing them to the immigration official. If God leads his children into suffering, not the day before and not even an hour before, but right before they need it, he gives his grace for them to get through. And that's the call for faith. Because we don't have the grace right now. So I can say to my dad, I don't have my passport, I don't have my passport, I'm not going to be able to travel, I'm not going to be able to travel. Can I trust my dad that when it's the right time that I'm going to get my passport? Yes, I can. If God leads us into suffering, he'll provide the grace we need when we need it. Here's the third imperative. Be alert and of sober mind. Was with a friend in a car traveling back to college. I was really tired. She was really tired. Apparently, I was more tired, or so I thought. It was ten in the morning. Crawled into the back seat of the car, went to sleep. Then she did too. And uh, we drifted off the interstate and slammed into a guardrail. And fortunately, it was just a gradual drift, so it kicked us back onto the onto the interstate. Messed up the car pretty badly, but. Neither of us were hurt, didn't involve anybody else. But you know what? Since then, I've never been able to sleep in a car. I guess that's a good thing. These two ideas, being alert and of sober mind, they're they're kind of opposites, as Peter sets them up, opposites of sleep and then being in a drugged state. In other words, he's saying, don't fall asleep and don't be drugged up. Those two things. You've all seen videos of people who are coming out of anesthetic, general anesthetic. They're hilarious. They're so fun. Maybe you've been one of those people. Maybe you have videos of yourself that you don't even know about, saying things you don't remember having said. Posted on YouTube. I was just watching one of my son, Ethan, the other day. Very entertaining. But that's the the image that Peter is giving us. He's like, don't, don't be drugged up. Don't be asleep. Be alert and of sober mind. There's so much in life that induces spiritual drowsiness and a spiritually drugged state. We can be swept up in the manic speed of life and the race to fulfill all our desires. And... The, the, the drive to provide every possible opportunity for our kids and get the possessions and chase down the promotion at work and have all the impressive experiences and vacations, post the coolest stuff to Instagram, grasp that degree that we believe is gonna give us a great career, and in all this rushing and speed, we completely are distracted from what's most important. How do we stay alert and sober-minded as to what's happening around us, not just in the physical realm, but in the spiritual realm. How How do we stay alert? It's not the first time you've heard me say this. I'm going to challenge you to it again. The primary way is investing yourself in the Word of God. And if you will commit yourself to forming that habit of every day in peaceful silence, not rushing, not just grabbing that one verse a day on the Bible app, but taking, if it's a challenge for you, start with 10 minutes, but be intentional. 10 minutes, set aside. There's nothing else distracting me. I'm not watching something while I'm doing this. I'm not eating breakfast while I'm doing this. The only exception is drinking coffee while you're doing this. And read the word of God with listening ears. What do I mean by that? Well, if this is really God's word and he's really speaking to us through it, then let's listen to him. And we read it as though he is speaking to us. We internalize it. We apply it. We pray it. We feed our spiritual lives on it. So I would say this is the foundational discipline or habit of a Christian life. So there's a lot of things that we should do, right? There's always more that we should do, should do, should do. But I would suggest that if you have not yet made this a habit, start there. Let the other things go for now and start here. Make this the priority And God will grow us from that. Because the word of God speaks. And it speaks to the reality of the time of Peter. And it speaks to the reality of today, 2023. And his word will help keep us alert and of sober mind. But then he tells us why we need to be alert and of sober mind. Because there's a roaring lion stalking you. Hoping to devour you. And if you're distracted or asleep or drugged, you're going to be really easy prey our enemy, the devil, a roaring lion. And his roar is a threat. It's intended to intimidate and terrify. For Peter's original readers, these roaring threats were very real. They were persecution and suffering. And the false promise was this. The enemy roaring out his threats, persecution, suffering, which was very real to them. If you just reject Jesus. If you say forget it, Jesus, you're not worth it. I back off from my faith. The roaring's going to stop, and it would have. If you just stop, don't believe anymore. Let go of Jesus. He's not worth it. The suffering and persecution here stops. But notice the irony, right? The roaring itself, it can't devour the soul. But if one gives in to the fear of the roaring and rejects Jesus, then our souls fall right into the mouth of the lion. So don't give up on Jesus. It's Peter's theme here. Rejecting him makes us pray to the enemy of God and the enemy of the church. Be alert and of sober mind. The fourth and final imperative is this, resist him. So Peter describes Satan as a roaring lion stalking his prey, and then he tells us to resist him, and that means he is resistible. We can resist him, and we do so How does he say it? By standing firm in the faith, by not allowing ourselves to be deceived into letting go of Jesus. And it gives us a reason for not resisting or for resisting the devil. Ultimately, that reason is because we're not alone in the battle, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So essentially, Peter's saying: So don't let them down, and they and to them don't let you down. I don't know if you remember this at the very opening of this letter, in the the first verses, Peter affirms that these scattered, poor, suffering exiles that have been entirely rejected by the world around them—they've been chosen by God to be in His family, and we are all part of that same family whose head is Christ and whose Father is God. Do we want to give up? Do we want to lose our membership in that family, in that community, that forever family? So that our life might be a little bit easier here. It's not worth it. Now, there's another side to this calculus, though, that we have to remember. We who live here in the U.S. in 2023, we rarely, if ever, face extreme persecution because of Jesus. I'm not saying we don't suffer. I'm not saying we don't have hard things that that we have to walk through. I'm not saying that death of loved ones isn't real, that abuse doesn't happen. I'm I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying that few of us experience those things because we believe in Jesus. And since we don't experience that, it's very, very easy for us to forget the great portions of our spiritual family that are constantly under threat or suffering because they're true to Jesus. And we have this vague notion. We know they're out there somewhere. They're in in Asia or in Africa somewhere. But it's inconvenient, and it's entirely foreign to think of them. Now, as I've said many times going through this letter, we can't and shouldn't force ourselves to suffer. God has not called us to be masochists. But we can and should choose to remember that we're part of a body that is suffering. And we can and should pray consistently for those who are being persecuted. So the Bible uses the image of a body to describe the church, God's family, right? So imagine that you have a broken leg. And you can analyze your body and say, okay, one limb, so more or less 25% of my body is in pain. But that means 75% is good. That's a, a significant majority. So I'm gonna go for a run, right? 75% of my body's fine. It's only 25% that's bummed out, so let's go. Time to play soccer. You have a torn ACL, that's a tiny little ligament. So what? Go play, go run, play football, kickboxing. But that's very often in our comfort here in the U.S., we don't articulate it that way, but that's our perspective toward our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering because of Jesus. In the concert of prayer for the persecuted church that we held a few months ago, last year actually, I shared this story teaching um, high school in Texas. And again, you have to remember, number one, this is Texas. Number two, this is like 30 years ago. So this the kinds of things that wouldn't happen today. But there was uh, one day at Christmas break where students and faculty decided it would be a really good idea to play a tackle football game against each other. Um, And I think the faculty was particularly excited about this, um, this opportunity. It wasn't exactly sanctioned by the school, but... It was all people from the school right after class had let out for Christmas break. So we went, went to the, the soccer field. We started to play. It was really fun. But just like five, ten minutes into the game, one of the teachers, Mike, got hurt. And uh, he was trying to tackle somebody and he dove at their feet and the guy's heel came up and caught him right on the, the collarbone. And uh, so he was lying there on, on the, the field. And the reaction of everybody involved was very interesting, and I put myself in this, um, I'm in the same group. We all come over to him and, are you okay? No, I'm not. Could you move? <laughs> are, are you able to walk? Uh so we kind of helped him to his feet and we're like, uh, you, you, you're okay, right? Can, can you just move off to the side of the field? Can, can you go? So, you know, he walked off, walked toward the school building. As soon as he was off the field, there was this sense of relief. It's like, all right, we can get back to the game. Mike drove himself to the hospital, had a broken collarbone, uh, waited in the emergency room for a long time on his own before he could get treatment. I'm not proud of that, but I think that's often our attitude toward our sisters and brothers who are far away who suffer. It's like, can you just get out of the way? Because when I think about you, when I focus about you and its implications, it makes me really uncomfortable, and it keeps me from doing what I want to do. It keeps me from having fun. It just keeps me from moving on with my life. Peter says, resist the devil by standing firm in the faith. Why? Because you're not alone, because our family is suffering. And those who suffer need our support, and the best way we can do that is to stay aware of them and pray for them rather than pushing them out of the way and saying, can you get away? Can you just get out of my sight so that I can continue on with my easy life? Because the flip side of that is when our turn comes to suffer, we will be forever grateful for their support. All right, let's bring this to a close. In all of this, everything that Peter's encouraged the church to do through this whole letter and specifically today What makes it possible for us to fulfill these imperatives? What forms the foundation of our hope? What gives us the ability to hang on, to persevere, to not give up, to hang on to Jesus? I want to read verses 10 and 11 again. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Did you hear it? What makes it possible? The grace of God and the power of God. The grace of God calls his people, chooses his people, saves his people, and keeps his people, even through suffering and peril after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. The eternity of a child of God is never in doubt because God will make them strong, firm, and steadfast. We talked about grace in the opening verses of this letter. God's grace does for us what we could never do for ourselves. And the never-ending power of God means that his grace is capable of accomplishing everything he promises. So I could say to you, I love you, and I'm going to build you a house. You know what? The first part of that statement could be true. The second part is not. Because I may indeed have the love for you, but I don't have the power or knowledge or money or ability to enact that love in that way. But what the grace of God promises, the power of God enacts and fulfills. And that's why the grace of God and the power of God acting together are such an incredible blessing to his church. Nothing can stand against him. We rest in his grace and we rest in his power. Verse 12 reads like this, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Stand fast in it. Don't loosen your grip on Jesus no matter what may come. Don't drift into spiritual drowsiness and drugged confusion. Remember the incredible blessing that is coming at the end of all days, your living hope, not the little mermaid, not that disappointment, but eternal purpose and joy and power. Hang on to Jesus because he's hanging on to you. You're adopted by God, given an entirely new identity, eternal DNA. Your primary citizenship is now in heaven. It's not here. And may this community of whole children live together and work together and speak together and love together in such a way that the gospel of Jesus shines more and more brightly. Where? In this broken world. Now, the final phrase of this passage, or two of them. First is, greet one another with a kiss of love. We're going to modify that and say, greet one another in a culturally appropriate way. Okay? Uh, If that involves kissing, that's fine. Again, in Brazil, that's how we greeted. And uh, I've made the mistake of trying to greet someone who wasn't Brazilian with a... a Anyway, it didn't go well. Greet one another with love in a culturally appropriate way. <laughs> but finally, peace to all of you who are in Christ. So there may be some of you here this morning and you have no idea really what I've been talking about this whole time. This is foreign to you, new concepts, new ideas. There's certain vocabulary I've used that's kind of left you entirely nonplussed. You're like, what, what is he talking about? Ultimately, the question is, what does it mean to be in Christ? And I can just summarize it like this. Every individual in this world and the whole world system itself is irreversibly broken because of what we call sin. And anyone who says that the world is not broken is not alert and of sober mind because it is. And if we're honest with ourselves, we see the brokenness in us and the pain we've caused others, the mistakes we've made, the stuff that's been done to us, that's caused us to suffer. And scripture says that the truth of of all this is that we deserve to pay for our own brokenness. And the way that that payment is made is called hell. Hell is eternal, being forever separated from God with no recourse, no hope, no change. So what we call the gospel and what it means to be in Christ is that Jesus took that punishment on himself. So the Son of God steps into our place. That's where the cross comes in. He dies on the cross for us. He offers his life. And that, we sang a song earlier right before I started preaching that said that God chose to look on Christ and pardon me he doesn't look on me and pardon me he looks at jesus and his sacrifice and he pardons me so jesus comes dies so that none of us no one who will come to him ever has to experience that separation from god they don't have to go to hell and experience that so that's what it means to be in christ to say to him jesus i believe i believe that you are the son of god i believe you died in my place I accept that, I understand, I see the brokenness in myself and in the world. You're the only hope for restoration. It's not about Jesus making our lives a little bit better here. It's about him saving us from eternal torment and about adopting, about God adopting us as daughters and sons of his, into his family, into his church forever. So as we close and and we continue to worship God through music, um, as we say each week, the altars are open. And um, if God's work, if there's something that's going on, maybe it's a desire simply to understand a little bit more about what this whole Jesus thing is and who he is and what he's done. Or maybe there's some other, maybe you want to come and just cast, as symbolically casting your anxieties onto God because he cares for you. Maybe it's repentance. Maybe you simply want someone to pray with you or for you If that's your situation, come to this side of the altar. Someone will join you there and pray for you. But if you want to come and just worship or be on your own, pray on your own, you can come to this side. We'll respect that. No one will disturb you. Sisters and brothers, let's stand. Let's sing. And let's come.
0: Thank you for joining us for this week's message. One way you can connect further with First Friends Church is through our website, firstfriends.org. There, you can learn about our equip groups as well as our upcoming events for all ages. On Sundays, we gather at 9 and 10.30am, and we'd love to see you there. Have a great week!